Section 3 of History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. The Philosophical Renaissance, Part 3. Thomas Hobbes. It has been shown that one momentous effect of the Copernican astronomy as interpreted by Giordano Bruno was to reverse the relative importance ascribed in Aristotle's philosophy to the two great categories of power and act, giving to power a value and dignity of which it had been stripped by the judgment of Plato and Aristotle. Even Epicurus, when he rehabilitated infinite space, had been careful as a moralist to urge the expediency of placing a close limitation on human desires, denouncing the excesses of avarice and ambition more mildly, but not less decisively than the contemporary Stoic school. Thus Lucretius describes his master as traveling beyond the flaming walls of the world, only that he may bring us back a knowledge of the fixed barrier set, by the very laws of existence, to our aspirations and hopes. The classic revival of the Renaissance did not bring back the Greek spirit of moderation. On the contrary, the new world, the new astronomy, the new monarchy, and the new religion combined to create such a sense of power, in contradistinction to act, as the world had never before known. For us, this new feeling has received its most triumphant artistic expression from Shakespeare and Milton, for France from Rabelais, for Italy from Ariosto and Michelangelo. In philosophy, Bacon strikes the same note when he values knowledge as a source of power, knowledge which for Greek philosophy meant rather a lesson in self-restraint. And this idea receives a further development from Bacon's chief successor in English philosophy, Thomas Hobbes, 1588-1679, in whose system love of power figures as the very essence of human nature, the self-conscious manifestation of that motion which is the real substance of the physical world. Hobbes was a precocious child and received a good school training, but the five years he spent at Oxford added nothing to his information, and a continental tour with the young heir of the Cavendishes had no other effect than to convince him of the general contempt into which the scholasticism still taught at Oxford had fallen. On returning to England, he began his studies over again in the Cavendish Library, acquiring a thorough familiarity with the classic literature of Greece and Rome, a deep hatred imbibed through Thucydides of democracy, and a genuinely antique theory that the state should be supreme in religious no less than in civil matters. Amid these studies Hobbes occasionally enjoyed the society of Bacon, then spending his last years in the retirement of Gormbury. As secretary and Latin translator he proved serviceable to the ex-chancellor, but remained quite unaffected by his inductive and experimental philosophy. Indeed, the determining impulse of his speculative activity came from the opposite quarter. Going abroad once more as travelling tutor at the age of forty, he chanced on a copy of Euclid in a gentleman's library, lying open at the famous 47th proposition. His first impulse was to reject the theorem as impossible, but, 
but on going backwards from proposition to proposition he laid down the book not only convinced but in love with geometry beginning so late in life his ulterior studies led hobbes into the belief that he had squared the circle besides the far more pernicious error of applying the deductive method of geometry to the solution of political problems could he and bacon have exchanged philosophies the brilliant faculties of each might have been employed to better purpose the categories of form and matter combined with the logic of elimination and tentative generalization would have found a fitting field for their application in the familiar facts of human nature but those facts refused to be treated as so many wheels pulleys and cords in a machine for crushing the life out of society and transmitting the will of a single despot unresisted through its whole extent for such is a faithful picture of what a well-governed community as hobbes conceived it ought to be during his second residence abroad he had become acquainted with the physical philosophy of galileo the theory that regards every change in the external or phenomenal world as a mere rearrangement of matter and motion matter being an aggregate of independent molecules held together by mechanical pressure and impact the component parts of this aggregate become known to us by the impressions their movements produce on our senses traces of which are preserved in memory and subsequently recalled by association language consists of signs conventionally affixed to such images only the signs standing as they do for all objects of a certain sort have a universal value not possessed by the original sensations through which reasoning becomes possible hobbes had evidently fallen in love with algebra as well as with geometry and it is on the type of algebraic reasoning in other words on the type of rigorous deduction that his logic is constructed and such a view of the way in which knowledge advances seemed amply justified by the scientific triumphs of his age but his principle that all motion originates in antecedent motion although plausible in itself and occasionally revived by ingenious speculators has not been verified by modern science gravitation cohesion and chemical affinity have so far to be accepted as facts not resolvable into more general facts hobbes died before the great discoveries of newton which first turned away men's minds from the purely mechanical interpretation of energy that mechanical interpretation led our philosopher to reject aristotle's notion of sociality as an essentially human characteristic to him this seemed a mere occult quality the substitution of a word for an explanation the counterview put forth in his great work leviathan is commonly called atomistic but it would be gross flattery to compare the ultimate elements of society as hobbes conceived them to the molecules of modern science which attract as well as repel each other or even with the democritian atoms which are at least neutral according to him the tendency to self-preservation shared by men with all other beings takes the form of an insatiable appetite for power 
leading each individual to pursue his own aggrandizement at the cost of any loss or suffering to the rest. And he tries to prove the permanence of this impulse by referring to the precautions against robbery taken by householders and travellers. Aristotle had much more justly mentioned the kindnesses shown to travellers as a proof of how widely goodwill is diffused. Our countryman, with all his acuteness, strangely ignores the necessity, as a matter of prudence, of going armed and locking the door at night, even if robbers only amounted to one in a thousand of the population. Modern researches have shown that there are very primitive societies, where the assumed war of all against each is unknown, predatory conflicts being a mark of more advanced civilization and the cause rather than the effect of antisocial impulses. Granting an original state of anarchy and internecine hostility, there is, according to Hobbes, only one way out of it, which is a joint resolution of the whole community to surrender their rights of individual sovereignty into the hands of one man, who thenceforth becomes absolute ruler of the state, with authority to defend its citizens against mutual aggressions and the whole community against attacks from a foreign power. This agreement constitutes the famous social contract, of which so much was to be heard during the next century and a half. It holds as between the citizens themselves, but not between the subjects and their sovereign, for that would be admitting a responsibility which there is no power to enforce. And any one refusing to obey the sovereign justly forfeits his life, for he thereby returns to the state of nature where any man that likes may kill his neighbor if he can. All this theory of an original institution of the state by contract impresses a modern reader as utterly unhistorical. But its value, if any, does not depend on its historical truth. Even if the remote ancestors of the 17th century Europeans had surrendered all their individual rights, with certain trifling exceptions, into the hands of an autocrat, no sophistry could show that their mutual engagements were binding on the subjects of Charles I and Louis XIV. And it is really on expediency understood in the largest sense that the claims of the new monarchy are based by Hobbes. What he maintains is that nothing short of a despotic government exercised by one man can save society from relapsing into chaos. But even under this amended form, the theory remains amenable to historical criticism. Had Hobbes pursued his studies beyond Thucydides, he would have found that other polities besides the Athenian democracy broke down at the hour of trial. Above all, Roman imperialism, which seems to have been his ideal, failed to secure its subjects either against internal disorder or against foreign invasion. Democracy, however, was not the sole or the worst enemy dreaded by the author of Leviathan as a competitor with his mortal god. In the frontispiece of that work, the deified monarch who holds the sword erect with his right hand grasps the crozier with his left, thus typifying the union of the spiritual and temporal powers in the same person. The publicists of the Italian Renaissance with their classical ideals had indeed been as anti-papal as the Protestants, 
and the political disorders fomented by the agents of the Catholic reaction during the last hundred years had given Hobbes an additional reason for perpetuating their point of view. Meanwhile, another menace to public order had presented itself from an opposite quarter. Calvinism had created a new spiritual power based on the free individual interpretation of Scripture, in close alliance with the alleged rights of conscience and with the spirit of republican liberty. Each creed in turn had attacked the Stuart monarchy, and the second had just effected its overthrow. Therefore, to save the state, it was necessary that religious creeds, no less than codes of conduct, should be dictated by the secular authority, enslaving men's minds as well as their bodies. By the dialectic irony of the speculative movement, this attempt to fetter opinion was turned into an instrument for its more complete emancipation. In order to discredit the pretensions of the religious zealots, Hobbes made a series of attacks on the foundations of their faith, mostly by way of suggestion and innuendo, no more being possible under the conditions than obtaining, but with such effect that according to Macaulay for many years the Leviathan was the gospel of cold-blooded and hard-headed unbelievers. That one who made religious belief a matter to be fixed by legislation could be in any sense a Christian seems most unlikely. He professed with what sincerity we know not, to regard the existence of God as something only a fool could deny. But his philosophy, from beginning to end, forms a rigorously thought-out system of materialism, which any atheist, if otherwise it satisfied him, might without inconsistency accept. On the meeting of the Long Parliament, Hobbes again left England for the continent, where he remained for eleven years, but his principles were no more to the taste of the exiled royalists than of their opponents. He therefore returned once more to England, made his submission to the Parliament, and spent the rest of his days, practically unmolested by either party, under the Commonwealth and the Restoration, until his death in 1679 at the age of 91. It may be said of Hobbes as of Bacon, that the intellect at work was so amazing and the mass of literary performance so imposing, that the illusions of historians about the value of their contributions to the progress of thought are excusable. Nevertheless, it cannot be too distinctly stated that the current or academic estimate of these great men as having effected a revolution in physical and moral science is wrong. They stand as much apart from the true line of evolution as do the gigantic saurians of a remote geological period whose remains excite our wonder in museums of natural history. Their systems proved as futile as the monarchies of Philip II and Louis XIV. Bacon's dreams are no more related to the coming victories of science than Raleigh's El Dorado was to the future colonial empire of Britain. Hobbes, had better fortune than Strafford, in so far as he kept his head on his shoulders. But the logic of his absolutism shriveled up under the sun of English liberty, like the great minister's policy of Thorough. The theory of a social contract is a speculative idea of the highest practical importance. But the idea of contract as the foundation of morals goes back to Epicurus, and it is assumed in a more developed form by Hooker's 
ecclesiastical polity. Its potency as a revolutionary instrument comes from the reinterpretation of Locke and Rousseau, which run directly counter to the assumptions of the Leviathan. Hobbes shares with Bacon the belief that all knowledge comes from experience, besides making it clearer than his predecessor that experience of the world comes through external sense alone. Here also there can be no claim to originality, for more than one school of Greek philosophy had said the same. As an element of subsequent thought, more importance belongs to the idea of power, which was to receive its full development from Spinoza, but only in association with other ideas derived from the philosopher whom we have next to examine, the founder of modern metaphysics, Descartes. End of section 3